0: Hi everyone, welcome back to episode five of Wrongful Convictions and Cold Cases. I'm so excited. Today, we're going to be talking with Carly Rowland about the largest active serial murder mystery in the country. It's the case of the 51. At least 51 women strangled to death in the south and west side of Chicago during the last 20 years. These 51 murders potentially involve one, two, maybe even three serial killers. Carly Rowland is an award-winning director and actress based in Los Angeles and has appeared in various films, television shows, and commercials. But her background in journalism and love of justice-driven storytelling led her to create the podcast Marginalized Murder." the case of the 51 Carly spent two years investigating this complex case. And I am ready to dig in. We have a lot to talk about. Let's begin. Carly, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you so much Andy. it's such a pleasure to be here with you finally <laughs>
0: yeah, finally, exactly right. We've been talking about this, and I'm so glad we could get our calendars out and get it to work because you know I've known you now uh, for a little while, and you know I know about your podcast in this case. When I heard about this case, you know me being in Chicago, I was like, what I, I, like there could be a serial killer or killers in Chicago. And I'll tell you this, you know, having lived here, I never heard of this story. Um, Okay. So it's like, wait a minute. How is this? And I'm in the true crime world. How has this not been on, you know, more media outlets? I mean, it's gotten some traction now because of your podcast um, primarily. And I think, you know, um some of the other things we're going to talk about, but Serial killer in Chicago, is that what we're going to get into today?
1: I think we are, and it's so true, Andy. I know you are really integrated in like you said, the true crime world also it's a part of your community, and the fact that you never heard of it, I was like, "My gosh, well, Andy's heard of everything going on." So, what does this mean to the regular layperson? They they probably have no no clue, right?
0: Well, and I know we're going to talk about this, and I think obviously one of the reasons is going to be as as we dig in here. The the women, the victims were primarily women of color, you know, as your podcast title mentions, marginalized murder. You know, it's not John Bene Ramsey. It's not, you know, sensationalized. It's people who were just kind of forgotten, you know, mm-hmm. and nobody. Oh, they disappeared. And they hmm, I guess they're dead. It's like, you know, uh, ho hum. And so it's still but it's still pretty stunning to me that you can have 51 unsolved murders that have these similarities and it really didn't get more traction. Tell me about the similarities in the 51 cases that that make them sound like they are potentially connected.
1: Sure. There's a few factors when you really dive into this large cluster of alleged Connected, allegedly connected murders that really make your bells sound. The first is um, the geographical locations of where their bodies were found. And so, upon the research that was done extensively by this brilliant man named Thomas Hargrove, he is the founder of the Murder Accountability Group. And he basically is an expert in geographical spacing of where bodies are found. And he said, his his data and research says that there, there are quote unquote, three killing fields, he calls them. They're in the South side of Chicago, the West side of Chicago, and the South, just below the South side. And so the bodies were primarily dumped there. So that's one thing is location. And he connects that back with the idea that uh, one or more of these killers you know they they kill in a place that's convenient for them, and they dump the bodies in places that are convenient for them, right because they may or may not have vehicles, they may or may not have access to just drive a body elsewhere and and leave it behind so that's number one. The other really startling factor that made me go, "Oh boy, this is something is the bodies were dumped either. In abandoned buildings, alleyways, or trash cans. And a few of the bodies that were dumped in the trash cans were burned. So, you know, these bodies were left in places that were probably not, you know, convenient to the public. So they were somewhat hidden. They were in places where most people don't go into an abandoned building, right? Some of these bodies were not hidden very well, meaning they were just in the the abandoned building or alleyway and not necessarily uh, buried or covered, right? Um, So people would eventually stumble upon them. Uh, So it's not just where the bodies were found in terms of geographical spacing, it's how they were left. And most of the times, Thomas Hargrove believes that these victims were Potentially also murdered in that wherever their body was dumped. So if it wasn't an abandoned bu- abandoned building, they were probably murdered there. Alleyway, maybe next to a, a building close to that alley, um, and trash can probably somewhere very close by. And the final thing that really connects these cases that got me is the type of victim and how these victims were murdered. So as you mentioned. All of these victims, all of the known victims are female. Um, Their age range tends to be between our youngest victim, I believe, was around 19 years old, and our oldest victim was in her 60s. All of these women were strangled to death. So um, that was another key clue here, right? They weren't shot. They weren't stabbed. They were all strangled to death. And I know that strangulation really a lot of times is connected to the killer, right? Uh, Normally women are strangled because of um, sexual impulse or things of that nature. And so there were a couple of key components that really connected these cases in a way that was pretty undeniable, if you will.
0: You know, a couple things stand out in what you said uh, just now. To me, probably the one that jumps out the most is they were strangled. You know, they're not shot. They're not stabbed. I mean, strangled is, you know, on the on the list of ways to kill people. It's not super high in the list, I don't think. No. I think it's fairly unique. It's hard. You need to use a lot of force. It's kind of a unique way that somebody can get murdered uh, so for all these women to be strangled, and I think the second thing is you talked about the bodies being dumped. So they're basically recovered, you know, not in not in a residence, not, you know, like it's if it's inside, it's an abandoned building, but it sounds like oftentimes it's outdoors, alleys, dumpsters, trash cans. I mean, so it's not like you could say, oh, well, these 51 women got murdered by their, you know. Boyfriends/husbands or somebody they knew, because, no, it doesn't sound like that. It doesn't sound like 51 women were murdered by 51 different men. And right. When I was doing a little research on the case, and um, I'll just give you a couple examples that I came across in 2007, a woman named Teresa Bunn was strangled, stripped, thrown in a dumpster and set on fire. Okay. the next day, a woman named Hazel Lewis, his body is found burning in a trash can. I mean, yes, that that does not sound coincidental to me when you talk about these particular women, these neighborhoods strangled, typically stripped dumpsters, trash cans, abandoned buildings, It sure sounds connected to me. And that's before you even get into the work of Thomas Hargrove, you know, with the Murder Accountability Project. Um, That's kind of, I think, what really connected the dots. So it does have a very kind of like stunning, like, oh my God, this, this definitely sounds like there's something going on here.
1: Yes. Can I add to that, those two cases, not only as you mentioned, Were they strangled to death and then dumped in a dumpster, set on fire within one day of each other, but their bodies were found on opposite sides of Washington Park. Um, And so they were, again, very spatially close by. And so for two random people to commit two separate crimes, it just, it doesn't make much sense, right? And so it's glaring things like that, that make you go, hmm, Something's going on here. And how have these cases not been uh, at least publicly connected by law enforcement, right? How are they ignoring the fact, like you said before, that strangulation is super rare. I think it accounts for 1% of homicides.
0: It's a certain type of crime where, you know, to use your hands, you know, or, or some other like, you know, I don't know if there was another object used, but like, you know, to do it in that way. Like if it's, if it's manual strangulation, that is a very, very unique, you know, type. And like I said, difficult type of killing. It's a unique kind of person who would do that. You know, I think the hard part here, when I first heard about this, my first reaction was gosh, like how did, you know, the police not connect the dots, but I will say this, (laughs) it was Chicago. I mean, there are so many murders um, and there have been so many murders in the last 20 years. Uh, It is hard in terms of resources and, and the kinds of things you need for each and every case because we've got so many unsolved murders here in Chicago, so many. But I do think, you know, when you talk about the work of the Murder Accountability Project, I do think more law enforcement agencies need to tap into some of these kind of new novel ways you know, because I think what he does, Thomas Hargrove, is uses some kind of an algorithm, doesn't he? And like, yes. takes the mm-hmm. data, kind of crunches the data. Yes. Because didn't him he and his work first kind of spot a serial killer in some other city? Like, didn't he first use this data somewhere else?
1: Yeah. So what's interesting is uh, he first tested after developing the algorithm, which. You know, is constantly being finessed and updated, right? And so he'll be the first to tell you it's not perfect, but it's getting like all sort of AI and algorithms, if you will. It's it's improves in every iteration of it. Um, but he first used a known serial killer. He used the Gary Wid- Gary Ridgway as his beta testing to look at gary's victims and sure enough they all popped up on his algorithm because what's interesting is his algorithm if you go onto the murder accountability projects website it actually shows the map of our country of the united states and the various clusters over the years of presumed serial series is what he calls them so you can go and look in your town and say you know i'm from plantation i don't know if i want to (laughs) (laughs) yeah i don't that oh you do gosh. either knowing your location no i'm kidding um but you can go and click on it and look in your hometown and the the cluster will pop up and it will tell you the number of presumed victims the weapon that was used right you'll see locationally where the bodies were found so he tested with the ridgeway cluster and it and it worked and what's fascinating is i believe this was around 2013 2014 he had a cluster pop up in Gary, Indiana, and you know there were women in Gary who were being strangled, and their bodies were being dumped, all in abandoned buildings. Uh, he did alert law enforcement. He said that he was basically told to, in so many words, get a life, and then he reached out to, and so you know he he tried to say, look my data is telling me that you've got a problem, right? You've got some seemingly connected murders here and seemingly connected victims because again, they were all women. Uh, They were, the majority of them, women of color. uh, And the majority of them were women on the fringes. And he said, all right, law enforcement's not really giving me the time of day. But he did have a contact within the medical examiner's office in Gary. And he reached out. And he said, Look, I tried speaking with law enforcement. I didn't get anywhere. And the medical examiner, in so many ways, uh, so many words, said, You know what, Thomas, we've been thinking we've had a problem here for a while ourselves. And so he started working with them. And essentially, all of these victims were found within a year. And I believe after Thomas spoke to the medical examiner's office, that you know law enforcement did start to go, okay, maybe we do have a problem, and they found a woman. She was 19 um, in a Motel 6, and the evidence led back to um, someone who I'm sure we'll discuss at nauseum today, potentially um, a man by the name of Darren Dion Van, and Mr. Van. did did admit to killing this this young woman. Her name was Africa Hardy. Um, She was strangled to death. She was found in the bathtub. He did confess to her murder and um, upon questioning then confessed to uh, the other, I believe it was six victims who had over the year been strangled to death by Mr. Van.
0: How does he get connected to... That nineteen-year-old's murder. How does he? How do the police get to him?
1: So there were a couple of clues, and and they got to him pretty quick. This was not a drawn-out investigation. Um, so Africa's friends were very worried about her. She again, she was very young. She had just moved to Gary. She moved with her mother to basically start over, if you will. Um, Africa was a sex worker, and her friends noticed that they couldn't reach her. And so they really started to worry because it was, you know, they said Africa always picked up her phone. Always. She was always responsive. And so they were able to use her phone, law enforcement, when they found her body, they were able to go into her phone. And there was basically, you know, a text and communication from this unknown number and that unknown number connected back to Mr. Van. So that was the main way in which they were able to really trace Van. I believe the other way was that they may have had a visual witness at the time as well who worked at the motel, but they were able through the cell phone to track down Van. Um, And again, he, didn't take long for him to confess to murdering Africa Hardy and strangling her to death. He had found her on a, on a website where he had picked her up and he had been picking up other women via this website.
0: And then he confessed to other murders in the Gary, Indiana area.
1: He did. He confessed to what was interesting. And this ties back to, as you mentioned that, that data that Thomas Hargrove had essentially said, look, My algorithm is pinging. You guys have victims that are connected. This is a series of, I believe, murders. And come to find out, he was correct. Mr. Van confessed to that series one by one and went through each victim that he had strangled to death. Again, all of those bodies were dumped in abandoned buildings. Africa's Hmm. was the only one found in a motel. And, you know, he had, it was a manual strangulation. So he would, have sex with them, and during sex would ma- you know manually strangle them, and so yes, he confessed to all of those murders. And you know it's interesting in talking when I spoke to Mr. Hargrove last, and in my podcast, you know he talks about that's something that he kind of lives with the guilt because he felt like he wished he could have done more. He he felt like maybe some of those victims would still be alive today. Um, and it's very hard for him.
0: In talking to him, tell me, I, I, tell me, did was he asked, hey, did you ever go to Illinois?
1: So I, I think what happened is this confession came out in 2014 where Van admitted to strangling the women in Gary and was sentenced to life without parole. He's in the Wabash Correctional Facility, and that's where he stayed. I believe in his interviews at that time, he started talking more and more and more. And he confessed to other murders around the country. He confessed to murdering people because Van at one time was a Marine. He was discharged. Um, And so he was moving around a lot and he confessed to murdering alleged victims in California, in Texas. I believe there were victims in Minnesota. And he said most of his victims were in Illinois, in Chicago.
0: Oh my gosh.
1: And a, a producer and a writer foia recently, I believe it was in 2021, he, he foia um tapes from that interview with the Gary, Indiana law enforcement office with Van. And you can, you can actually, I believe go on YouTube and find the clip where he said, you know, I, I killed most of my victims in Illinois. Now I think what at first maybe law enforcement believed he was telling stories, you know, I don't know that he was taken seriously. It's only been in the last three or four years now that this Chicago cluster has really been on the radar.
0: So Mr. Van went to prison in what year, 2014? 2015? I
1: believe he was sentenced in 2014, 2015, yeah.
0: So my first question is, and I don't know if you know the answer to this, have the manual strangulations, killings in Chicago stopped?
1: The pattern in Chicago, and I know this is confusing because we're talking about the cluster in Gary that is connected to Mr. Van, but the large cluster that you and I talked about earlier, the last known, presumably connected strangulation, I believe, took place in 20 I want to say 17.
0: Interesting.
1: That is where and again at the top of our conversation, you know, you mentioned that there might be more than one active serial killer in this cluster, right? So I do believe that is a strong reality.
0: That's even a scarier thought, right? But yeah. When I look at this and, and you've got a guy, okay, so he gets connected, you know, luckily they had the cell phone and that's yes. how they cracked the case because it yes. sounds like in most of these cases the victim is found nude or partially nude, burned, or there's there's really not much other evidence to look at. So they connect right. him through this cell phone, which was just so lucky and fortuitous. Yes. And then he and then he basically confesses to the other killings, which all are similar. Now at that point when he says he's killed people in other states and most of his victims were in Illinois, I don't see any reason if I'm a detective sitting across from him. I don't see any reason to doubt any of that. I mean, I I mean this is a person that's killed multiple people in Gary in a similar way. I you know, if it was just one murder he got arrested for, okay, maybe you, you know, but I I would have been like, "Oh my god, let's let's immediately get on the phone with California, Texas, Minnesota, and Chicago and try to figure this out. I mean, I, I just don't see why you wouldn't give this guy, you know, just the benefit of the doubt considering it'd been multiple, multiple cases that he confessed to in Gary. So, and yeah. when he says most of the cases in Illinois, I mean, yes, my yes. goodness. So, do you know has anybody tried? Has there been any follow up with him about the Illinois cases?
1: Yeah, so a few things and and you know your statement is so correct, and your assessment is on the money when you're like, "Why wouldn't that be followed up And what's interesting is that I believe at the time Mr. Van was wanting the death penalty, and so he was confessing to all of these alleged crimes and all of these alleged victims which by the way, if were true, he would probably be the most active serial killer in, in our history, you know? Well, that's, the numbers that's, are, would be up there, right?
0: Oh my goodness. Um,
1: <laughs> you know, along with like a Samuel Little, like he, he would be up there. And then I think what happened was he didn't want to be tried outside of, you know, the state uh, of Indiana. And I think he started to backtrack. And so law enforcement, I believe at the time, didn't know what to really believe, right? It, I think their head was wrapped around this idea, is this man making up stories so that he gets the death penalty? Um, and then when he realized he'd be tried in all those different places and you know maybe the death penalty wasn't on the table, um, or I think maybe he even changed his mind, it, it got a little convoluted. So I do know that there was a lot of back and forth between is Mr. Van telling the truth or is he not, right? I do believe that after a few years passed, that the FBI did start to question Mr. Van. I do believe that based on some of my sources and folks I have been talking to, I do believe that the FBI is investigating not only the Chicago cluster but continues to investigate some of Mr. Van's alleged other crimes. So I do believe that there is an active investigation and I don't think much is being made public because it is still a, an open case. How much information they have, I again, I've heard I've heard some shocking updates in, the, in this year. When an announcement will be made or if an announcement will be made, I'm I'm unsure.
0: So at the time of the Gary murders, was Mr. Van living in the Gary area? He was. Is there any evidence of him living or visiting Chicago?
1: So in his confession, he said that when he would get these, uh, he called them, when he would get these outbursts because he had, uh, he, he he talked about his anger issues and he'd get very angry and he was living with his family at the time. And he said when he would get angry, he would leave. It is presumed that he potentially took the uh, CTA's green line into Chicago or hopped on a bus. Now, do we have pay stubs to connect him back to that? We don't, but he said he would take public transit into uh, Chicago to get away from his family so he wouldn't hurt them and it is believed that that is how he would travel and then potentially being in that state commit other crimes elsewhere so as you mentioned it's not hard and Mr. Van admitted to actually leaving his family and then traveling nearby and 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 then the rest you know is what you could just imagine what would happen when he was over in Chicago.
0: Huh. Now the thing about this kind of case that I think is interesting. So if you're talking manual strangulation, you're talking, you know, hands around somebody's neck, you're talking DNA left on the victim. You're talking, you know, touch DNA. And if there's a sexual component to it in some of these women, there could potentially be DNA from, you know, the perpetrator semen found, you know, in around the women, So that's assuming, you know, the bodies aren't burned, et cetera. But it does sound like it's the type of crime that should have potentially physical evidence that forensically can be tested. Unlike somebody got shot, you know, and it just, we maybe got some ballistics, but, you know, we don't have like the ability to do DNA testing. These sound like there's the possibility that they could. Have you heard anything about that?
1: Definitely. It was a big part of my investigation and conversation with Thomas Hargrove. And I was also closely speaking with uh, Pam Zekman. She used to be a reporter with CBS over in Chicago. She's amazing. And when she was still working for CBS, she she broke this story, really, in the Chicago media. And one of the things that we were all kind of perplexed about and, and questioning was exactly that forensic evidence, right? And Thomas Hargrove explained that in this cluster, and the first known presumed victim was found in 2001, and the last, in 2017, most of the DNA in these crimes was recovered in the earlier victims. And then as time went on, around 2011 onwards, there wasn't much DNA found and in fact I actually have an excel spreadsheet that can you know tell you the victims names and whether or not there was DNA Hargrove believes that the lack of DNA in many of these cases is due to either the killer and or killers getting smarter with their crimes right so destroying DNA through burning of the bodies and or wearing gloves, just getting smarter in in their crimes and more tactful, and or also just, you know, maybe the Chicago Police Department uh, not adequately gathering forensic evidence on the scene. And so, you know, he's not sure, but over time, there's been less DNA associated in this cluster rather than more, even though the technology's gotten better, the testing's gotten gotten better. Like you said, trace, finding trace evidence has gotten so much, you know, it's right.
0: Yeah, I mean, if you could link him to just one Chicago case, then you're like, okay, we've got multiple cases that he's confessed to in Gary, We've now linked him to one of the Chicago cases forensically. Then you can say, MO, okay, yeah, same right.
1: Victim profile, same manner of death, cause of death. You know, the, the, the similarities are astounding, right?
0: Yeah. The strangulation to me is, is just such a, to me, such a unique one. Bodies being dumped, set on fire. When I heard like a lot of these women were recovered in dumpsters and trash cans. That's, that's. That is very unique, kind of modus operandi. Are some of these women Jane Doe's? Do you know?
1: Um, They're, to my knowledge, now again, and here's something. I feel like every time I share this with someone, they're like, excuse me. There are believed to be at least 51 victims. However, Hargrove and others involved in this case say that there's way more. I've heard upwards of 75. Oh my gosh! Now, out of the that large number of potential and alleged victims, there are very few Jane Does. Um, in fact, I think there's probably less than five. Most of them have been ID'd. Most we do know their name. We do know, you know, their families have been notified um, if they had families. So. There are not many Jane Doe's, um, even Teresa Bunn and Hazel Marie Lewis, as you mentioned, who were burned in the trash cans, they were able to be ID'd, right?
0: The reason I ask is, you know, in my Starve Rock Murders case with Chester Weger, yes. we recovered a hair on one of the victim's bodies that we think came from the killer. We know it's not Chester Weger through DNA testing. That hair is now being sent to a lab in Texas called Othram, who- Probably the leading lab in the country in doing this genetic genealogy. You know, worked on a lot of big cases. It, you know, the Idaho murder case was solved that way. I mean, at least I mean, not solved, but you know, that's how they connected it to the person that got arrested. Right. Um, and so they can take potentially, you know, DNA, create a genetic profile and then try to match it up with a, you know, public genealogy databases. And I know for instance, author is working with the Will County coroner's office here in the Chicago area, and they've identified several Jane Doe's. You know, They've identified the victims in several cold cases. So I throw that out there. I'm just curious. And I think they get, they get funding for this somehow. So that's something I would love to be able to see those last handful of Jane Doe's be identified so that you could get some closure for the families and whatnot. So we'll have to talk about that some more.
1: I know that for many years there was a massive DNA backlog in the, in the testing uh, world in Chicago, that was a huge issue. I know that, you know, there, there was, you know, companies that came in to say, this is what's going on. And I believe that they have cleared that backlog, which is great, right? So I, I know that all these victims and the DNA that they did have has been tested. What all of those results are, I'm not sure. And I'd be curious to know has any of the DNA been connected back to Mr. Van? And if so, are they just holding on to that evidence as they build a case against him? I, I That I don't know, but, you know, it's a possibility. I, I'm hoping maybe that's the case.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. And when you say the number could be as high as 75, um, that also makes me think that, you know, you might be talking about more than one person here. And I think you have to be talking about more than one person, obviously, because if you had one of these similar murders happen in 2017, when Mr. Van was in prison, obviously it's not him. So at least one case, there's somebody who committed a similar murder. That is super interesting to me to think that whether it's a copycat, whether it's just another person who kind of has the same MO, I'd like to know more about all of that. I'm no expert in serial killings, but. What I wanted to ask you was, you know, knowing your background as I talked at the outset, you know, um, being a producer, a writer, an actress, and those kinds of things, but now a storyteller, how did this case get on your radar screen? And then what prompted you to say, you know what, I'm going to try to do a podcast and tell this story?
1: You know, my mother grew up in Gary. My mother. Oh, I didn't know that. Really? Yeah. Yeah.
0: Really? Mm -hmm. Wow.
1: So that's where she was born. And she spent uh, most of her childhood until uh, my my family moved to Connecticut when she was around 16. And so, you know, I visited often as a young girl and it was my first time and first memories of even just going to the North because uh, I'm from Florida originally. And ever since then, you know, I'm, I'm very fascinated by, you know, where my parents grew up, where my ancestors lived. And so I've Always kept a pulse on that area. And as the years have gone on, I've for some reason become very fascinated with Chicago and, you know, East Hammond and Gary, that whole area, because as you and I know, there's a lot of activity going on, there's a lot of crime. It feels like there's always sort of some unbelievable story happening. And during the pandemic, I read a huge article and actually saw. Pam Zuckman's video or, or her news report on this investigation that she was doing on this case. And I thought, how is this not national news? It was unbelievable to me. And also the whole algorithm component, I was like, that's fascinating. And so I started to just do a lot more research and build some connections and, and really learn like about the story. And I just It was unbelievable to me. And I decided, you know, I'm lucky enough that I have the capacity to tell this story if I want to. And so I just started chipping away at it um, over the years. But it was really tied back to my mother.
0: What I love about your podcast is how you talk to the victims' families, you mention their names, you tell their stories, you give them a voice, you have so much compassion. And obviously, you know, just to, want to do a podcast about it. That's what I thought was so good. A lot of times, you know, we get bogged down in these true crimes with the gory details of the crimes. And you actually, yours is about the women, you know, the women who nobody told their names, who they were, what their stories were. And that's what I thought was so great about it. I really encourage anybody out there, go check out Carly's podcast, Marginalized Murder, The Case of the 51. It is so good. You're going to learn about you're going to learn about you know the case, but you're also going to learn about the victims, who they were, and you're going to hear their stories. And I think that's the main thing. The way you were as a storyteller, the way you told that with such, with such compassion, I, I just was so impressed. Um, that was really what stood out to me. So where does the case go now? Now what? So are you still working on it? Are you kind of on pause waiting to see what happens with this investigation? Or where do things stand today?
1: Well, first off, thank you, Andy. <laughs> thank you for your kind words. I just, it means a lot to me. And I think one thing that you and I connect on and talk about all the time in these kinds of cases is like you said, there's one story, which is the crime. And, you know, this the horrible thing that somebody lost their life and people get bogged down in the violence or the case and the investigation. But for me, the story really within the story, are the people and the lives that were affected by these crimes. Um, And a lot of times that is the story. And I just, I really wanted to first and foremost, make it less about a serial killer and or killers and make it about these women because these women matter, Um, people matter. We often dehumanize the victims, you know, and, and really anyone can be a victim right? Anyone can be a victim. And so not to, you know, be macabre, but it's more about like, yeah, that is the story. So I really wanted to focus on them and their lives and the tragedy of their passing. Um, so thank you for that.
0: No, you did that. Do you have, do you have a podcast website? Is there a place, somebody listening who wants to, you know, hear more about the stories, who these women were, look at the cluster patterns, like take a deeper dive. Where can somebody go who really now hearing what we just talked about wants Mm -hmm. more?
1: So I don't have a website for the podcast. However, you can find the podcast anywhere you listen to podcasts. So Spotify, Apple, um, Stitcher, it's all over. YouTube, it's also on YouTube. And I would highly, highly, highly recommend checking out Thomas Hargrove's Murder Accountability Project. His website is murderdata.org. And that's going to give you a lot of information uh, in terms of just going on to that map and checking it out. That to me pr- and promoting his work is the most important thing because he's a real trailblazer in my book.
0: I just, I'm so fascinated by that because taking the data and having these clusters and looking at that and then looking at that geographically, I think that's real interesting. And I think when you first, I forgot to mention this when you first talked about when Thomas Hargrove went to the Gary, you know, police department and they kind of told him, get a life. I mean, (laughs) you know, I mean, I've got a lot of police officer friends. I support the good police officers. You know, most are doing a difficult job and they're really putting their heart and soul into it. But when I hear about something like that, where either people are lazy or they don't want the help or they're territorial, it should be welcomed with open arms, like, hey, come on in, let's get some coffee, sit down and Let's brainstorm. I think I think as we progress as a society and get more advanced, law enforcement needs to get more advanced, you know? And I mean especially now with data. We can collect data, we can analyze data, we can do all these things. There's new forensics testing, it's exciting. I mean genetic genealogy. There's so much going on out there. We're always going to need your old gumshoe detectives knocking on yes. doors with a small notepad. We're always going to need that, but we got to combine it with cunning edge modern work and the work that the murder accountability project is doing is really interesting one last thing i did note i haven't seen it have you watched the discovery plus show the hunt for the chicago strangler
1: yes absolutely
0: does that tell the story does that kind of get into it a little bit
1: yeah i feel like that's a great jumping off point it's a three part series i did watch it you know i think what I love so much about the podcasting space is you have the good fortune of discussing and commenting on things that maybe won't be able to make it to, to TV. Right. And so if you're just curious about a very quick way to dive into that, I check, I recommend checking it out. You can rent it or buy it on discovery. Um, If you're looking for something that is more in depth, uh, I definitely recommend checking out my podcast because again, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <you> know, I, <laughs> yeah. I was able to you that's know, you the don't,
0: starting point.
1: You don't right? Uh, uh, thank you. There's not the barriers that you have for television where there's certain things you can't talk about in podcast. You know, in podcasting the space is open.
0: I'm gonna do some more research. I'm really fascinated. I want to learn more. I want to make those connections. I want to try to solve help solve some of the stuff. Yes,
1: Andy, we need you.
0: We will continue our discussion. Carly Rowland. it's always great to talk to you. And I hope that we talk soon with some type of an update.
1: Absolutely. Thank you again for having me as a guest and thank you for all of your incredible work, Andy.
0: Anytime, anytime. Thanks for listening to this episode of wrongful convictions and cold cases. I hope you enjoyed this so much as I did. Fascinating case, potential serial killer or killers in the Chicago area in my backyard. I definitely need to know more. Stay tuned. We're going to have more episodes of compelling true crime cases and stay tuned for those of you who have been following the Starve rock murders. We are in the middle of forensic testing. I'm hoping to have updates later this year on that. But we're continuing to investigate every week, interview people, do more things. So as soon as I have something significant to share with you, trust me, I will be back with an update. This show was produced in collaboration with Phineas Ellis and Studio Friends. Design, content, and production by Bell and Ivy. We'll see you next time.